Let's see. All right, I've got uh, John Ziegler with me. This is uh, Get Rominger on the phone. John, uh, for people who don't know you, you've spent about the last 10 years investigating the Jerry Sandusky case. Uh, obviously, I have some history with the case as well. I'm sure we're going to get into that tonight. Uh, bef before we get started, I want to let people know you've got a podcast out called With the Benefit of Hindsight. And we're going to talk a bit about that because I think that's where you've really put a lot of work and time and effort into uh, into finding out what what happened. You're calling it, or at least the description I have that is out there on Apple, is the true story of corruption, greed, and self-interest that destroyed Penn State, its iconic coach Joe Paterno, and an alleged monster. This series follows nearly 10 years of investigation, this case conducted by journalist John Ziegler. So, so what got you started on that? Well, first of all, Carl, thanks for having me. I have to say, uh, of all the, I don't know, over a hundred interviews I've done at least uh, on this case, this one is the the most unusual. <laughs> you you are doing this interview, and you've been somebody who I have viewed as almost a middle figure over the last uh, much of the last ten years, having been the co-counsel for for uh, Jerry Sandusky's defense. And um, you know, we finally spoke on the phone rather extensively a few weeks ago and it was great to to finally yeah. get a chance to talk to you and you had some very interesting uh, insights about your experiences and hopefully i have some interesting stories about my experiences and we can kind of team up on this and i know behind the scenes we've already talked a little bit about about teaming up on all this the the short story of of how i got involved in this is that um when this story broke nationally and as you know, it broke locally before it broke nationally. But when right. it broke nationally in November of 2011, I was a, a documentary filmmaker of, of some reputable note, especially in conservative circles. Uh, I um, My previous two films had successful, one of which had debuted on the Today Show in a high-profile newsmaking interview with Matt Lauer. That was about the 2008 presidential election called Media Malpractice, how Obama got elected. It featured the most extensive and exclusive interview Sarah Palin ever did about the 2008 election, which I did from her home. Blew up the world uh, when that happened, much to my surprise. And I did all of the major television shows, including The View and The Today Show and all the cable news network shows. And so I was looking for another project. I wasn't sure which direction I was going to go. And I saw this explosion in State College, Pennsylvania. And I had grown up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which, as you know, is nowhere near State College. It's basically right. in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And um, so I grew up knowing who Joe Paterno was and knowing who Jerry Sandusky was. But I was not a huge Penn State fan. I was a Notre Dame fan. I grew up as a Catholic kid. And um, Notre Dame was my favorite team. Uh, the only Penn State I ever went to was Temple Penn State at the old Vet Stadium, and I was rooting for Temple. So, uh, you know, I was not a Penn State fan. But now John, let me, come, John, let me let, let me stop you for a time. Ten years ago, let me stop you for a second because before before you go a little bit further, some of my audience might not know uh, how extensive your media experience is. Uh, and I I did a little cheat sheet here, so I'm just you know I'm going to shoot your accolades for a second. You were 
actually considered one of the top 100 talkers in the country in talk radio. Uh, when, when the Atlantic wanted to do kind of a, a, a hit piece maybe or a story about talk radio, they actually sought out and did a piece about you to, to give the greater context of talk radio. Now, I've read the piece. Um, I think it's fair in some respects. It obviously has a slant. It was written, you know, with a particular way. But if you really read it, they really kind of compliment you as a top performer when it came to radio, someone who, you know, can really hold a thought in his head, can put a coherent argument together and was really popular with the audience. Um, and, and you were nationally syndicated, but you were also big in LA and that's a big media market. You know, people here on the East coast, I don't think always appreciate how unique a media market that is. So it's not like you were some guy out there, you know, floating around looking for something to do. Like you said, you had the documentary film experience, but you were also a top radio guy, right? I mean, that's fair to say. Well, I, I've done a lot of things very um, in a very mediocre fashion in my career, Carl. <laughs> I've had a lot of uh, spectacular successes and a lot of spectacular failures. The Atlantic, um, then known as the Atlantic Monthly article you reference, is one of the more bizarre episodes in a very, very strange career. It's okay. far more bizarre than you even gave it credit for. Uh, first <laughs> of all, it was written by David Foster Wallace. Um, David Foster Wallace in liberal circles is almost a godlike figure. Uh, he is considered the voice of his generation. This, is, this was uh, uh, um, cemented, basically, when he killed himself not long after the article about me came out. Um, not that I was the reason he killed himself, but uh, that article uh, ended up as a 23-page cover story in Atlantic wow. Monthly Magazine. 23 pages. And um, it was very strangely written. Um, there are at least three uh, factual inaccuracies in the first paragraph uh, of, the, uh, of the article. Um, I did not know who David Foster Wallace, I'm embarrassed to say this, but when he came to me and wrote me a letter right. asking to shadow me, I did not know who David Foster Wallace was. And this was really before Google became, you know, ubiquitous. Right. I, I didn't, I didn't even think to look him up. I thought if he's, if he's wanting to shadow me, he can't be that big of a deal. Cause I'm not a big deal. I had just moved to Los Angeles to work at KFI. And when I met him, I thought there's no way this guy's a big guy, a big deal. He seemed like a homeless person. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> he seemed and smelled and looked like a homeless person. And this is guy, the guy who millions of people consider to be the genius of his generation. I spent right. months with him, or he spent months months with me. And there was not one moment in that in those many months that he spent shadowing me that I ever thought, boy, that guy's smart. Boy, that guy really knows what he's doing. That, there was nothing. I, I, I pride myself. I pride myself on seeing talent in others. Right. I think that's my greatest talent, actually, is being able to see talent in others. I never saw any talent in this guy at all. And so, and so when so yet, thing, yet he he saw talent in you, and and actually said that part of your talent was playing the straight mediocre guy in the L.A. market, right? Uh, but I, I just, I found it fascinating because I, I read that article and I thought, this tells me something. You, John Ziegler, were, were 
important in the talk radio industry in some respect because you represented uh, the prototype of, of you know, the, the Rush Limbaugh type. Now, we just had a local guy, Ken Matthews, who went national, um, and he only lasted seven months because apparently he accidentally said some things on a live mic. Um, he, he did Rush's last show. But I, when I think of well, Ken Matthews, and then I read this, I think you were the Ken Matthews of that time. a lot of issues. <laughs> I don't know. Here's my theory on what happened with the David Wallace. Here's my yeah. theory on the David Foster Wallace uh, essay. Okay. I think he was intended to do a hit piece on talk radio and thought that he originally tried to go after Limbaugh, but Limbaugh wouldn't let him shadow him. So he thought, right. okay, if I can't go for, for the big dog, I'm going to go for a guy who's more likely to let me do this. You know, someone, I live in Los Angeles area. KFI is the number one talk station in the country at the time. This is the new guy in town. Maybe he'll let me right. do this. And he'll be so naive. I'm going to be able to do this hit piece on him. And it's going to be awesome. But something interesting happened on the way to the hit piece. And okay. that is, I, I think he actually liked me. I think he actually <laughs> was, was surprised. I think he was surprised that he, one, that he liked me. Two, that I do so much research. See, I'm not, this is partially why I'm not in talk radio anymore. I'm not a normal talk radio guy. I took it very seriously. I took it uh, very much as a news program with my opinion. And I was mm -hmm. ultra prepared. In fact, my, if, you know, if my older me was talking younger me, my number one piece of advice probably would have been, don't prepare so much. You're wasting a lot right. of time and energy, which, which ends up, costing you in other ways. Um, and so uh, I think he was shocked by that because I think the, the liberal view of talk radio, which by the way, sometimes is correct, is that some loudmouth who knows nothing just gets in front of a microphone, spews some BS opinions and says, uh, let's take some calls. Tell me how great I am. That wasn't my shtick. I didn't, my shtick was right. I didn't have a shtick. I, I was actually all about finding out what the truth was. And by the way, that didn't help my career either because what talk radio wasn't as much then, but it certainly is now. Talk radio now is really all about telling the choir what they want to hear, you know, preaching to the choir, telling, telling a cult, you know, providing therapy, I call it, for a cult. <laughs> yeah. That's what talk radio is. And I just don't do that. I, I, I am a, you know, follow the story where it goes. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care what people think about me. I don't care if people like me. I don't care if people hate me. It doesn't matter to me. I have asbestos skin. And that's part, getting back to the Penn State Sandusky case. It, you know, Carl, I don't believe in fate. I really don't. Right. But I've said many times that if, but if there was fate, my, the first 45 years of my life built me for the Penn State Paterno Sandusky case. I mean, the growing yeah. up in Pennsylvania, but not in state college, the going to uh, college at Georgetown, the coaching high school football in New Jersey and in California, having been a sportscaster in television and radio, knowing every element of the news media, being a documentary filmmaker and, and seeing uh, how the news media can take narratives and spin them for their own purposes and how there's no going back. Um, not to mention, you know, even some other details that are probably worth even getting into. It was, it's almost eerie how my, my life 
prepared well, me for John, this you, for better or for worse. Because as you, you know, you, you, know start, you know better almost anybody. This right. you started in sports casting, I think was that one of your first media you jobs? Know, yes, I my first first on-air job as a TV sporter in uh, just right. outside of Pittsburgh, in Steubenville, Ohio, Wheeling, West Virginia. The NBA there. Ironically enough, my news, and I was the weekend sports guy, weekday reporter, my weekend news anchor was Liz Habib, who ends up being my co-host 30 years later, plus on With the Benefit of Hindsight. He was a pit grad, and she was somebody okay. who I, I wanted to have host because she, she believed everything in the case. She believed all. She reported it all. And I knew, because I knew her and I knew, you know, she had enough respect for me that I could convince her. And I wanted her to come along for the ride. I wanted her to be the audience being skeptical about, wait a minute, hold on. You're telling me this? You're telling me that didn't really happen? You're telling me this really did happen? And eventually I succeeded. And you can actually hear that. You can, you can hear one of the more interesting elements of with the benefit of hindsight is you can hear the uh the evolution of of liz's thought process on this and it's quite dramatic and and so she's kind of like uh what you're you're scully to your molder you know you're you're the true believer and she <laughs> kind of uh I mean, maybe we're dating ourselves since we know that reference but that that kind of ideal uh of bringing somebody along to sort of maybe fact check you as you went or backstop you or, or no, you were just pretty sure from the beginning you were going to convince her. No, it's it's both, really. I mean, I think you described what I was looking for. I am some. Um, I, I want to be challenged. I'm I'm the only person in this case that that would do any interview with anybody. I mean, the people right. that are on the other side of this case, Proof Carl, is here. they don't want to have any discussion. They know they. Right, right. They do not want to have any discussion. The people on the other side of this case do not want to be confronted. They don't want to be questioned. I mean, heck, I don't think you even know this, but um, one of your, I don't know if your direct adversary at the time, but Janelle Eschbach, who I know you know, was a big key part yeah. of the prosecution in this case. I sent her an email, a simple email a few years ago, simple email asking her some questions. She sent me a cease and desist notice from her lawyers saying that I should never contact her or her family members ever again. I thought, wow, boy, that's, that's a pretty telling response. It seems like somebody who has something to hide or doesn't feel very confident in, in, in what they did or what they believe. And that's just symptomatic of, of everybody. And so um, I, I, I want it all out there. And, if, you know, I wanted Liz to confront me when she thought I was wrong. I felt confident that I could not end my view. But as I said, right. convince her, believe that, that we did that. And I know we did that in totality. I mean, she may not have every little detail, but, but certainly in totality, in the, in the big picture, she is. And she's a very credible person. She's somebody who, right after the podcast, went on to be a professor. Or ironically enough, at Syracuse University Newhouse School of Broadcasting, which is the number one broadcast school in the country, uh, and then Cron Cronkite School at Arizona State. So this is someone who teaches news media, and she fully realizes that the news media blew this one in a spectacular fashion. So, so just to touch on the podcast for a quick second, 
how many hours you you it's pretty extensive right what is it, what's it contain and how many hours is it okay well it, it, it's a little bit um difficult to define because uh, when you say the podcast so I'll, I'll tell you what we have okay there are 19 episodes of with the benefit of hindsight those 19 episodes some of them have some of those episodes are literally record length uh podcasts like four or five hour episodes which we know is unheard of but no one's ever really complained because they're spectacular and they and as you know the nature of this case requires them not just because it's so detailed but because the burden of proof on our side is so absurd mm -hmm. you you have to build a wall a brick wall around every little thing you say otherwise it all falls apart so i would say of the 19 episodes there's at least 60 hours of content there. But then we did something extraordinary. I've never been doing this, but I, I'm all about transparency. And that is we released the interviews of everyone for the podcast, which you can find at my website, framingpaterno.com. And it includes you know, an extensive interview with Bob Costas, uh, you know, members of the Penn State Board of Trustees, Franco Harris, uh, two extremely long interviews. We get another one of the administrators right. who went to jail in this case, who believes Jerry Sandusky is, is, is innocent. Let me emphasize that. Says innocent. He now believes him to be innocent. Um, and, uh, and so there's at least, I would say, 40 hours, somewhere in that range, uh, of, of raw interviews that you, and this is all free, by the way. They, you know, and, and until recently, there were no ads anywhere. And I think there's now ads on the podcast itself, but not on the interviews at framingpaterno.com. So I would say that in totality, there's probably about 100 hours or somewhere close to okay. of material that would that would be somewhat defined as the podcast. So, you know, one of the questions people would, would ask, and I know because they've asked it of me is, so what are you guys talking about? Because obviously it's pretty simple. There was a trial up in state college, a jury heard all the evidence and they convicted the man and uh, he, he's really guilty, right? I mean, that's that's the pretty much the pushback you get most of the time, right? Of course, no, I mean, the, the number one hurdle that, that people have to overcome to even get into this podcast or this story is the notion that will be anything new, right? It's 10 years later. We know this story. And um, and why are you bothering with us with this? Why, why, you know, and why are you defending child molestation? Which is, of course, absurd. That no one's defending child molestation. Um, but um, I, I think that there's a lot of different ways I have found, Carl, to get into uh, this story. I, I found it to be a lot easier, especially for conservatives, post covid because um uh, you know at least for me magic words when i'm trying to convince a conservative that this might not be what you you were told are just think about covid and think about all the insane things over the last 3 years because of covid policy and uh, there are a lot of similarities in in the big picture in the big picture of how the COVID story developed and the narrative got set, the Penn State Turno Sandusky narrative got set, both of which occurred in incredibly 
quick fashion of an unprecedented panic. And, and that's the key of it. Right. When it all starts, it's a panic. And the media is not competent in, they're not competent, period. But they're, they're really not competent when it comes to highly emotionally charged issues in the middle of a panic. They grab on to whatever narrative works best for them. And then that's the truth. And there's no going back. And like COVID in this particular story, Carl, one of the reasons why there's no going back is because of all the damage that was done. Like, right. for instance, in, in my view, mask mandates are insane, right? I mean, they're absolutely insane. They're anti-scientific. They did absolutely nothing. We caused millions and millions of kids, including my daughters, to go to school wearing masks simply to make liberals feel better about themselves. That's what we did. But no, but no one can admit that. No one can admit that because one, no one likes to admit they're wrong, but they really don't like to do wrong in cases where they cause great damage. No one wants damage. Less chance there is of going back and fixing it. Duke Lacrosse, which has you know got the false allegation against Duke Lacrosse yeah. players of race, got fixed. Why? Well, one, the evidence was overwhelming. Two, two, because damage to those boys was great. I think I lost your sound for a second there, John. I lost your sound. Yeah, I don't. I don't have your sound, John. Oh, we got technical difficulties, folks. Uh, always with a live interview, as you can imagine, these things happen. Um, I got to let him know. I don't think he knows we've lost his sound. So let's go to John. Lost your sound there for a second. I just sent you a message. All right, well, we got a little dead air, so I'm going to fill it for a second. John's going to try to get his sound reset here. Um, okay, maybe disconnect and reconnect. So he's going to disconnect and reconnect. That's my solution for the problem. Somehow he got muted during that uh, uh, garble session there. We'll never know what he was saying, but I'm sure when he comes back, it'll be good, right? So he'll be back in here in a second. It just takes a minute for this system to... Uh, to re-allow him back in. Uh, as soon as he comes in, I will pop him back on the air. Uh, you know, this is an interesting interview because obviously I was a participant in the case and I'm sure he has some questions for me, but I really wanna interview him and see where he's coming from on this. Uh, I'm not sure uh, where I'm gonna stand on all this, uh, but let's get John back on here. John, you're back on. I don't, I, I don't know if I see sound from you yet or not.
Carl, can you hear me now? I got you. You're back. Welcome back, John. What were you saying? <laughs> yeah, I can hear so you. So you can hear me now? Okay. Absolutely. All right. Anyway, um, I, I was trying to make the point about damage being done in particular cases and why it makes it more difficult for the media to revisit. And the, right. the, there are cases where the media can do this. Penn State Turner Sandusky is not because they put all their chips down. They destroyed five great men in ways that can never be restored. Um, not to mention a university, not to mention this went on for years. And so that is, you know, you, you asked about how it is that this could happen and why people should revisit this. There are still things about this case that I'm learning 10 years later. In fact, when I spoke to you the other day, I, I learned a few things that I did not know. How in the world, and I've, I've, I've devoted my life to this for 10 years, how in the world did the media figure this out in three days or four days? Because that's what they well, did. In so, three or four days, so, they, they figured it's impossible. <laughs> so, John, let me, let me tell you something that uh, I, was, I always thought was interesting in the case was, as you recall, that grand jury presentment was leaked to the media. Now, it's my belief based on pretty direct knowledge that that was leaked intentionally. But I always thought it was interesting how it was written because if you parsed it, it was, it was maybe if you read it against the grand jury testimony, technically supportable, but not really, but written in a way that really harmed Joe Paterno you know, right out the writ. The, the reading that the media gave it was that Joe Paterno was given a very specific allegation that did nothing about it. But that's not actually what the grand jury testimony said. And it really wasn't that presentment is not actually supported by the raw testimony. Um, so you have a presentment that prosecutors wrote in a misleading way. Uh, and then that was leaked to the media in the middle of the night, so to speak, in a, in a roundabout way, it was put up on the website and taken back down. And that was done intentionally because I'm aware of several folks in the media that that was leaked to, that was gonna be put up and taken down. But I always thought the worst, you know, you know talk about whose lives are destroyed or not destroyed, I, you, you can take, but the worst sin for me was right at the very beginning, the way they basically torpedoed Paterno out of the blue with a presentment that just wasn't true the way it was written and way it, it, it referenced Paterno. To me, that was a major flag as to what was going on. Now, was Corbett behind that? Do you know? Was that, was that a Tom Corbett move? Uh, well, right, here's my theory on this, all right? And I, I agree with you. I mean, to me, the grand jury presentment comes down to two words. Uh, anal intercourse. I mean, the, right. the, the fact that the, I mean, the anal intercourse of a 10 year old boy, that, that, that was, that was everything. I mean, that's the headline. Oh my God. Cherno was told about the anal intercourse of a 10 year old boy in a Penn state shower. And all he did was tell his superiors about it. I mean, that, right. that sounds horrible. Um, there that did not happen. That did not and, happen. In and fact, it wasn't actually happening. Um, if you parse the grand jury presentment, it doesn't literally say that, but it implies that. It says those words in one sentence. It implies that that's what he was told. But it it was cleverly written, I can tell, so that you could say, well, Judge, I wasn't misleading because 
a really smart person would have picked up on the fact that these are separate sentences and therefore, you know, kind of stuff lawyers might point out to other lawyers. But it was like the Willie Horton ad that Bush ran many years ago. It didn't matter what you actually said. It was what impression it gave. And then the media ran with that immediately. And, and that bell has never right. been unrung. And they uh, differ a little. Paterno. But go ahead. Have you read the grand jury right. testimony? We, we may how that went. I've read what's publicly available. You, you I'm sure. Been right. I would just tell you it's my, it's my distinct impression. We, it's unbelievable that we still do not. It's my distinct impression that that presentment does not line up with the grand jury uh, testimony. I can't be more specific than that, right? Well, I will take my law license. Away. Okay. Well, oh, wait, I, I don't I, and I'm one. sure. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm, I'm quite sure that, that <laughs> I'm, I'm quite sure that's the case, but we, we, we may for slightly on how that was intended to, yeah. uh, you're making the argument the prosecution was going after Joe Paterno. And I would submit that that doesn't make any, any sense. Uh, and, and here's my theory of, of what of how yeah. went, what went down. Okay. So you have to remember one of the most absurd parts of the destruction of Joe Paterno uh, is not just for, just pretend that the Jerry Sadusky allegations are, are true, which you and I both know they're not, but let's pretend they're true for a second. The right. most absurd, the most absurd part about destroying Joe Paterno is that without Joe Paterno, and his and his quote unquote testimony, Jerry Sandusky never gets arrested, and that is a fact. Joe Paterno is the only thing, person or thing, backing up their star witness, Mike McQuarrie. He is the most trusted man in the state of Pennsylvania at the time. So, had Joe Paterno in that grand jury said, which would have, by the way lined up with what he told police before the grand jury testimony, right. I'm, was I'm sure you're aware of, that, that, um, that, that, that there was nothing sexual here, that I don't really remember Mike saying anything like there being a sex act. This doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, if that had been Joe Paterno's testimony, which in my view would have been accurate, but that we're dealing with an 84-year-old man who's very insecure about losing his memory. And, and he's He's being coached by his son, Scott, who's a Republican lobbyist. This is key. Scott Paterno is his lawyer and his son. Scott is a Republican lobbyist. They, they, this, this, is run, this prosecution is being run by a Republican team. Tom Corbett is the Republican governor. He's the former attorney general. They have Scott Paterno by the balls. Okay? So Scott is deeply invested deeply invested in this invest in not doing anything to disrupt this investigation. And okay. when Paterno's grand jury testimony so is so big, so big and the prosecution not particularly helpful as helpful as they'd like or need, they go back to Joe Paterno in October of 2011. The last thing that they do Carl, before they arrest yeah. Jerry, is they go back to Jono in his home. And there's one other person with him in his home. One other person. That person is Scott Paterno. So an investigator, Jono, and Scott Paterno are in, her, in Joe Paterno's house. And they go right. through one more time.
time to make sure Joe is absolutely on record backing up Mike McQuarrie. And in this instant, Joe backs up McQuarrie to the, to the hilt. And I would submit the reason why that happened is because Scott was there making sure that Joe backed his guy, which was his natural inclination, his assistant coach, his former quarterback, backing him to the hilt. If Joe doesn't do that, if when right. if when they come to Joe in October 2011 and Joe says, guys, you know, I've been thinking about it. I I don't know what Mike told me. I, I can't remember. It was it was 10, 11 years. I don't even know what date this was. I I if that been his reaction, could not have arrested Jerry Sandusky. So because if they arrest us and then Joe says that publicly, their case is done. So, so let me, let me done. just say, you see what I'm I, saying? I don't Carl? know. Yeah, no, I got you. I don't, Joe is their star. I don't know what the interaction between Scott and Joe and the investigators is because I'm not there, right? I mean, you have, you have a theory. But I will say this. At trial, it was proven that at least on one occasion, the police went off tape recorder but didn't actually go off tape recorder and we're telling a witness what other witnesses were saying and then went back on and then magically his testimony changed. We know that happened. We also know um, that in another instance, a young man refused to say that anything had happened to him repeatedly. And every time the police would re-interview him and he would say nothing had happened, they would get angry with him. And on like the fifth or sixth visit, they threatened to throw him in jail for lying because he wouldn't say that something happened to him. We usually, he was actually called as a defense witness to explain the police conduct in the case. So while I wasn't there and I don't know, um, I would certainly say there was a lot of evidence in the case that the government was trying very hard to shape witness testimony in ways that frankly um, are beyond the pale. And two of those instances came out in open court. Right, so. and I believe that Joe Paterno was manipulated too. I, I believe that Joe Paterno's better name was used again. You have to remember, Joe Republican. It's a Republican administration, Republican pro-prosecution. Joe, Joe is, is got a son, I just said, is a Republican lobbyist. They, 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 Scott wants Joe on the prosecution team. Scott becomes convinced early on that Jerry Tell and his strategy to save Joe is to separate Joe much from Jerry Posser. Scott did Jerry Sandusky from Jerry Glanville, all right? He never had a conversation with him. He had no idea about the, the accusers. All he knew was we like Mike. Mike is the star witness. We need to be on Mike's side. And Joe ends up going on Mike's side in October in 11 in that interview I referenced. And that's when they decide we've got enough to, to finally arrest Jerry Sandusky. So this idea that somehow the presentment was intended to get Joe Paterno, I don't believe is true. I think that that was collateral damage that they did not anticipate. And here's what I, just to finish this thought, Carl, because I think this is important. Right. I'm a big, I'm a big time, I'm a big timeline person. Timeline is everything. And in this case, it's really everything. And with regard to the news media timeline on this, here's what happens. On that Friday, the grand jury presentment gets leaked. Ganim just happens to be at home on a Friday night and just happens to be on the on the website 
right to be able to, to get the grand jury present before oops it, it gets it gets leaked right so now right. the story breaks over the week which penn state is not playing a game that weekend they're off the previous weekend joe paterno had just come the winningest coach in the history of college football all right right over that weekend, it is my belief this is this is purely my belief in, in, a, in a scenario that makes some sense I think God. the prosecution thought that the that that this was going to be a nuclear explosion on its own. That the Jerry Susky allegation on its own would be so huge that they would get what they wanted, which was their whole case. And you know this because they were medicating this from Susana, uh, uh, the detective who should have never been on this case because he was a narcotics guy. Yeah. Not a not a drug uh, not a sex abuse guy, but but um, but Susano said, if we get publicity out there, we're going to get a whole slew of really good accusers because then it'll be like the Catholic Church case, right? We're gonna the people will come out of the woodwork, and even though we don't have a strong case now, we're going to have a really strong case once this becomes public because the media is going to go bananas. Well, guess what happened over that weekend? Outside of State College, nothing. No one gave a shit because no one remembered who Jerry Sandusky was. No one right. cared who Jerry Sandusky was. He was a former from uh, 11, 11 years earlier. He cared. And so the prosecution looked around. I was like, wait a minute. We just de- um, and not that much has happened. We, we need some more gasoline on this fire. So then on Monday, they have a press conference, and that's when this, the, the police commissioner is on Joe Paterno's role in this. Poor ass liar. That's when they throw oh, Joe Paterno the... under the bus because now they... they The state police became the Go moral ahead. police on that. Yeah, the state police became the moral police all of a sudden. Uh, it wasn't really right. a crime, so, but it was a, it was a terrible thing right, to the do. Right, the, uh, the state... We regulate... We regulate that now. Yeah, he he failed in his more he failed in it he, he failed in his moral responsibility. That something to that like effect a James is what Comey, said about Joe uh, Hillary Clinton. From that moment, like a James Comey. Okay, so so they so they throw Joe Paterno under the bus, and that's when the light the 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 the, the flame is lit. The the nuclear bomb goes off nationally, and ESPN goes 24-7 on this story because now it's a Joe Paterno story. Now we got right. box office because we got a and current coach who's a legend, who's a celebrity, who just became the winningest coach in the history of college football, and he's got a home game this Saturday, and guess who's in that game? Guess who's carrying that game live? Holy cow, it's ESPN. So now we got a week's worth of material Right when the NBA is on strike, baseball just finished, hockey no one gives a shit about, college basketball hasn't started yet, we got NFLs in a lull, we got nothing going on this week, but now we got a greedy on our hands because what did Joe Paterno do? Look at this grand jury presentment. He was told about the anal rape of a child and he did nothing. The great Joe Paterno, oh my God. And so this now, drives the coverage for two and a half days. Yes, Carl. No, well, I the reason I the reason I wondered wondered about the affidavit being written the way it was, the presentment, I should say, is I'm aware of another media outlet who was made aware of the leak. 
and they hesitated to pull the trigger because they wanted confirmation and they got scooped by the Patriot News. But, but my understanding is they knew when to look at the website because a couple people had been tipped. And I understand that would play either with Sandusky being the target to, to rev things up or with Paterno. But I always felt like the affidavit was written to throw Paterno under the bus. And I felt like that was early in the case, like right from to the what beginning. End, they, to, what, to, to what end, Carl? He's their star witness. To what end? To what I, end? I always felt throwing Paterno under the bus. Yeah. I always felt it was what you thought, which is to rev the case up. Um, I really listen. Uh, well, Frank Fina, who ran that, it's kind of academic at this point because it, it really, but but it pollutes it because it goes back to what you said: is how do you unring the bell? And that's the coverage that everybody remembers, right? That's the thumbnail sketch that everybody has of the case, and that's about where their knowledge ends. I mean, maybe, right. I, maybe and, and we're getting bogged down on, on what is an interesting, an interesting, but uh, right, you know, frankly, tangential so, so, point. Although so I will, focus although, on, although I let me just, Carl, 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 let me let me just yeah. finish with this on Paterno. It, it's it is somewhat trivial as to what the motivation was, but it's not trivial as to how this case break, goes and breaks down because Joe Paterno is everything to this case. Everything. I I I cannot emphasize this enough. I'm. I, I have a constant conversation with a mainstream reporter that I, I put you in touch with. I hope you'll talk to so shortly. I know he's eager to speak to you who's been working on this case for a couple of years, but he's not a sports guy. And I am constantly trying to explain that without Joe Paterno, there's no Jerry Sandusky rush to judgment. There's, the Joe Paterno angle is why there was massive media coverage. It's why there was the Bob mm -hmm. Costas interview. It's it's why everyone presumed that Penn State was pleading Janowski's crimes by firing Paterno and Graham Spanier, who has a book coming out, the president of the university. Then none of this makes any sense to people because they're not understanding the, the timeline and the motivations. And so if you take away, let's, let's pretend, in a rational world, had just said, well, um, this is very troubling allegations about Jerry Sandusky. Get back to us when you have a trial, and we'll see whether or not, you know, anybody, any of our people are, are guilty of anything. But until then, we're going to go on with life. If that had been Penn State's response, which it right. should have been, if that had been Penn State's response, I believe that Jerry Sandusky doesn't go on trial for three or four years, if ever. Because over that three or four years, well, without any momentum, I'm sorry. I, it, Penn's, part of it? Penn State's problem, yeah, yeah. Part of Penn State's problem, as we learned later, right, was the fact that they never got competent legal counsel. They had Madam Baldwin, the former Supreme Court justice, up there, you know, misrepresenting the clients in front of the grand jury and 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 giving early advice in this case, like, oh, don't worry, you know, and. And I feel like if they had hired competent criminal lawyers and competent PR people right from the beginning, they probably would have taken a slightly more nuanced approach to the whole case. But those guys, Graham Spanier and them never in the board, I don't know who else knew, but to my knowledge, they never got a real criminal defense lawyer to look over these grand jury subpoenas or the whole thing that was going on. So they ended up neck deep in it in panic mode. That's what I think. I mean, that's what do you think about that? 
Well, I've spoken to Graham Spanier. I've, I've spoken to Graham Spanier many, 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 many times over many, many, many hours. I've done what I can be the definitive interview with Spanier, which you can find at the with the benefit of hindsight. I believe it's episode 17 or 18. It's four and a half hours long. Uh, it, to me, if you listen to that interview and you think that, uh, that any of this is, is real, you're, you're delusional. Um, but, but here's the thing, Carl. Um, I think we've seen this many, many times. In fact, we saw a situation occur this weekend. It's eerily similar at BYU. The essence of academia is, no matter where it is, it's always liberal. And the liberal DNA says to yep. cave immediately. Cave immediately. That is in the DNA. We must cave. Now, ironically, Spaniard, the liberal, was the only person who said, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't be throwing our own people under the bus. And he got thrown under the bus because of it. So the the, the Penn State was what I call the original virginal case, where Penn State's reaction had nothing to do with facts, nothing to do with logic, nothing to do with... It was, oh my God, being attacked. We guilty. Times will like us or get off our back, and, uh, and we can show how virtuous we are by throwing our own us. That is what Penn State did. Did it in record time. Joe Paterno, who was supposedly so powerful, got fired over a cell phone taken to him by a, a bicycle carrier um, in the middle of the night. Uh, on the Wednesday before what was supposed to be his last home game, I always say to people who say that Joe Paterno ran the university, I said, well, that, that's not a lot of power when <laughs> you get fired in, in, in that fashion. And so um, and so to me, um, there was never any chance of Penn State defending itself because especially once Joe Paterno was fired and Spaniard is fired because now they're invested in their own guilt. They put $100 million on the table, which made it very easy easy, very easy for the prosecution to keep their case together because all those guys knew they were going to get paid huge bucks once Jerry was, was convicted. That's why I say if, if, if this goes down in a different way and we wait three or four years like should have happened before a trial and these guys start, start to doubt whether or not Penn State's going to cough up money and they, and they get a little older and they start to realize, wait a minute, I'm not telling the truth here. This doesn't feel right and one drops off and another one nervous and another one drops off and there's no forward momentum, I believe the case never goes to trial. Instead, Carl, I'm amazed. I think one of the great weaknesses in the prosecution case is that prosecution at the time of Jerry's arrest has six accusers, six right. human accusers. All right? Only two, by the way, uh, claim actual sex acts, but they have six human accusers at the time of trial. I mean, I'm sorry, time of rest. They get this massive explosion, unprecedented worldwide coverage for this serial pedophile. He he is deemed to be guilty in the eyes of the entire world. And they only add two more accusers, both of whom, as you know, are awful. Mm -hmm. Awful. Number nine and number 10. They're awful. To me, right there, shows the absurdity of the prosecution case by their own theory of the case. They were expecting to get inundated by better accusers. They hated Aaron Fisher. 
victim number one. You know that. They hated him. They, 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 they thought he was terrible. That's why they were as the star with number four. Now, they, they, how would I say it? They kept threatening, like, with these imaginary, they'd say, oh, you know, like, if you guys don't waive the preliminary hearing, we might charge victims uh, 11 through 17. And, you know, we, we've talked to victim 28. And, and you see sometimes in the documents references to higher victim numbers. But interestingly, none of those panned out, right? Um, they, they were never comfortable bringing those charges. And by the way, you know what I know, which is had they actually had more victims beyond the number that they brought to trial, um, you know, obviously they would have charged that subsequent, right? Because everybody always does the pile on victory lap when they have it. Plus it's hard to explain to families, um, your kid really wasn't a victim or was a victim, but we're not going to get justice for your kid. So most of the time, if you have somebody that gets convicted and then a bunch of people come out of the woodwork, you get the tacked on charges, the add on charges, the new and continuing indictments. And that just simply didn't happen in this case, which is interesting if you know the fact that they were floating much higher numbers. Um, uh, also, along those beginning. lines, Carl, and I, I don't know how much. I also, I don't know how much you've thought you've given to this. Why was there, there was there were reports of a federal investigation in this case? Victim number right. four testified that he had uh, for for um, to be used. That it, why was there never any federal charges filed in this case? Because I mean, no, no federal prosecutor wanted the the fame and glory of of a federal conviction of Jerry Sandusky. It should have been a slam you dunk, know, right? I always felt that they they brought the FBI in on some things, and I never. It's hard to put your finger on it, but it never felt like the FBI was fully on board with the state, if that makes sense. Like they provided some forensic as assistance, but it never felt like the federal element of the investigation ever took off. So in that regard, like you're saying, I mean, what happened with it? It just didn't feel like there was any, any uh, uh, love. Sometimes, you know, when these things are prosecuted at the state level, there's a, an agreement with the U.S. attorney not to take over a case or not to federalize something. But I never got the feeling here. I got the feeling here, quite frankly, that there just wasn't anything that they wanted to pursue. Right. And, and who knows Who knows why? But the fact that there, there was never uh, any federal charges, I find interesting. Uh, but more importantly, I can't emphasize enough the utter garbage that came forward after Jerry Sandusky's arrest, Joe Paterno's firing, the massive firestorm, the Bob Costas disastrous interview. If Jerry Sandusky was guilty, there would have been dozens of highly credible people who would have come forward. Instead, you got number nine, who tells the most ridiculous story of the entire trial, and number 10, who ne never met Jerry Sandusky. Him. <laughs> and so to me, that's game six that match you have so the allegations at the time of arrest so so you know and and you yelled at me when we first talked because you said so carl do you think jerry's innocent and i said well you know as a lawyer and, uh, and you're like that's a lawyer's answer that's a lawyer's answer and i was just said i i don't have an opinion on guilt or innocence of anybody i've ever represented because i never cared about whether they were guilty or innocent when i take the case um, what I will tell you, though, is I've been involved in cases where when you lose, 
you can you can say I know why I lost because there's a videotape of my client committing the act that the government alleged and he confessed to the police and the only reason we had a trial is they wouldn't flex off a mandatory sentence and uh, we were hoping you know we could get a lesser conviction or we were disagreed on the um, we didn't disagree whether my client killed a person we just disagreed about the specific intent or lack thereof you know those kinds of things this was truly one of the cases where when you look at the evidence and, and what was presented, if you believed certain witnesses, right, i.e. the person who says, I was the victim in the room with the guy, and this is what he did to me. As I always used to tell clients, I always tell clients this, if, if I go into the alley with your mother and your mother comes out and says that I raped her, I could be convicted of rape. Now, the lack of forensic evidence, the lack of cooperation, my my personal history, my knowledge, you know, all these kinds of things could come into play and a jury could convict me or acquit me and would likely acquit me without something. But if two mothers say I did it, right, then probably the jury's like, well, I got two people saying. So is there technically sufficient evidence based on the government's theory for certain victims? The answer that the courts have said so far is yes, right? Um, and as a lawyer, I would say that's, that's plausible for a conviction. But on the other hand, I would tell you, this is the kind of case where it was very troubling because there was evidence that the government was telling witnesses what to say and giving witnesses the fact pattern, right? Because they go to the jury and they say, look, he does it the same way every time. And then you find out that they in fact were telling witnesses, this is what the other guys are saying, i.e. another guy said. And then you don't know if they told that guy this stuff. So, it's a it's a it's a case where having even been in the courtroom i can see why a jury would convict somebody based on the evidence that was presented to them but i can also tell you that if i had a chance oh, to retry Carl. that case oh no john john listen i have had many oh, that's bullshit. many clients carl that's oh, bullshit you can, you can that's tell me bullshit that. carl what you just said is total bullshit what okay, you just so said is total witness, bullshit and you know it's bullshit Ziggler, first of all you know jerry a, is you if a guy first, takes the first stand of all, and you says, know Jerry is this guy did it to me. Wait, 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 John, John, stop for one second. I know you're an advocate at this point and you're an investigator, but I want you to think about something. No, no, no. The jury is no, no. told, you, listen, you, John. This is not John. true. What you just said is a not jury, true. It doesn't Paul. matter. Truth is not what court is about, John. Have you no figured that out been... yet? Have you figured out that court's not about the truth yet? Carl, Carl. Have you figured that out? Carl, can you show me? Truth. Can you please show me? Now you you said you said you said the fact that the conviction was uh, based upon the evidence. Can you please find for me another modern day serial pedophile at Jerry's age who was convicted without any of the following? No pornography, none, zero, zip, zilch, no drugs, no alcohol. No plying of any way, shape, or form. No physical abuse. No confession. No plea bargain. Nothing. No, no drugs. Nothing, even in the realm of what is normally the, a very, very, very tried and true pattern of a serial pedophile. There's. I have never found yeah. any conviction of a serial so, pedophile so, without John, one I, of those things. Without one of those things, no guy, DNA, obviously. I represented, I represented a guy who got 30 to 60 years for three counts of rape years ago. 
And he would fit your bill except for one thing. He had pornography. And by pornography, he had a playboy. And the, the Perry County judge allowed the government to show that this guy had a Playboy magazine as proof that he was the kind of scumbag that would possess pornography and therefore might have molested these girls. Um, I think he was wholly innocent. But I had many cases where people who did nothing were acquitted and convicted and hung charges. When, when a witness takes the stand, a jury is free to believe some, all, or none of their testimony. Some, all, or none. There is, as a matter of law, sufficient evidence in the case. It's very poor quality. And if the jury knew everything that was going on investigatively, I think they may have reached a different verdict. But if you just went on the fact that did anybody take the stand and point at the guy and say, that's the guy that did it to me? And if the answer to that is yes, then a conviction can lie, right? I mean, that's the law. I can't change the law. We have I, I know you don't like different I know views you don't like that answer. Of, no, I don't, I don't, I don't understand why you are, especially at this point, all these years later, you're, you're hiding behind that. I don't get it, but if, if I'm not that's hiding what behind do, that's it, what you need to do, but the reality, I'm not hiding behind it. The, the reality is that the, the, the reality is Jerry Sandusky is clearly innocent. You know that um, he did not do these things. It was not possible for him to do these things. One of the things that didn't get, get mentioned, unfortunately, is his records, which you now know about. Uh, which yeah, I did not know about that. Alone, this this. Yeah, that's amazing that you didn't know about the medical records. Good co-counsel Joe Amendola, in my view, didn't bother to read them, and he he sloshed off the the testosterone low testosterone issue. And then, if he had actually read records, he would have seen that during the time period of number nine and number one's allegations, Jerry Sandusky was. Diagnosis having testicular matter, virtually no testicular matter. A man in his 60s with no testosterone, no testicles, is anally raping teenage boys in his basement while his wife is upstairs baking cookies. Bullshit. There's no, no chance. And why Listen, does no one, not one of these boys ever, men, not boys, ever say that Jerry Zendusky had no testicles? Because they never saw his testicles. Because he's innocent. Because they never saw anything. Because well, there was no sex and, abuse. And, and, and some people may think the point you're making is strange, but many years ago, I was involved in a case with a man who had a very large belly and his belly actually hung down over his genitalia. And that actually was an issue in the case because a, a female who said that he had, uh, you know, required her to give him a, a oral sex. And I know this getting into the weeds, but the way she described it was physically impossible. And that was actually palpable to the jury because it was something you could show them. And those kinds of things become important. I had a case okay, one time, a rape, a rape, hold on one second. I had a rape Carl, case you, one time. Carl, you, you had Carl. Yeah, I, I had a rape case one time where the jury wanted to see a bicycle. And the bicycle was the alternative, alternative source of the injury. And even though a bunch of the jurors wanted to convict each time, it was hung twice, the jurors who wanted to convict still said, well, we would have liked to have seen the bicycle. And I'm like, well, what the hell do you need to see the bicycle for? If you want to convict the guy, you think he did it. Like, yeah, but if we saw the bicycle, but the bicycle was lost in the midst of time. So we know that showing these things to jurors can make a big difference. So I don't think you're completely uh, out there when you say that, that, that kind of material. Now, that doesn't preclude it. It makes it very improbable, right? But it doesn't, 
That's the one problem in law. You you can't but, preclude Carl, it with that. Carl, the judge is going to grant you, you a, I'm surprised a No, I, I didn't ask for that. I I, I would say right. though that uh, any juror who's using their brain would look go wait a minute. Why well, didn't why did not one accuser ever mention anything about Jerry's lack of testicles when supposedly I, a, Aaron Fisher was was forced to be giving him oral sex a hundred times by his own final testimony? Although he's told so many different stories, he probably has no idea, you know, how, how many times he supposedly uh, gave Jerry Sandusky oral sex. But I'm surprised, you know, with this logistic thing that you never mentioned what happened in the Sandusky case. And I believe you were you were the person who uh, was the point man at this, where the prosecution tried and even the, the very biased against Sandusky judge was like what the heck is this tried to enter into evidence pictures taken in the shower where there's the mannequin of the boy yeah and they put the mannequin on on her so that so that it would be tall right. enough for a man to anally penetrate right is, do i have I, it right carl i uh i was successful in keeping a number of those images out because they weren't accurate right uh, because the government had these crazy theories and I'm like, you're not, you, you, you can't show that. Yeah. That was all litigated. Um, but like everything else, some got in, some did not. Right. But, but how insane working, is that? How insane? Well, okay, it's the, insane because the, the, the they, they literally had to create a scenario, right. With the mannequins that wouldn't have worked. Like in other words, in order for, I, to set this up, in order for McQuarrie to have seen what he claimed he saw, right, which he didn't always claim he saw, but sometimes he did and sometimes he didn't, um, they had to create a factually impossible situation with the mannequins to back him up, right? I mean, they, isn't that where we're going with this and which is just bizarre, but that's the extent of the government, like, they'll try to slide that stuff in there, right? Um in a way, you almost you, you're almost like, do I want to let these images in just to show how absurd it is, or do I not want to let these images in? It reminds me of all, all your murder cases where you're going through all the autopsy photos, and the government's trying to put in every murder scene photo and every autopsy photo, and you're explaining to the judge like, well, this one shows a, a lot of red blood, and the judge is like, well, I'll make it black and white. Objection overruled if it's black and white, and and it's always a give and take in court. And my joke always is. If you're a good attorney, what you should do is come with 10 pieces of evidence that you want to get in when you only actually want to get one or two of them in. Um, the judge will be like, oh, well, I already denied these guys these four things, so I'll let you have these two to, to, to be fair. I uh, actually, I actually wish that the judge – I wish the judge had allowed that in because it, it would have been – I understand why, why you – why, right. And, and listen, the superior court, right, I said to that judge, he refused to instruct on prompt complaint. This is a major issue in Pennsylvania. It's a simple issue, right? You must instruct on prompt complaint. And then the superior court's just like, yeah, Robinger's right. You need to instruct on prompt complaint, but who cares? Not in this case. That one really threw me. That one really threw me because we so, really so what, believe so prompt complaint is important in the law. It's always been important. So, so what else do you want to know, Carl? I'm happy to I'm happy. I'm happy. I'm happy to answer why Andre Sandusky is innocent. So, John, you mentioned something to me that I thought was interesting. You've said that the entire timeline, this entire key conversation, where where Mike McQuarrie says that he told Joe Paterno what happened, and that that's what leads to Joe Paterno sending the email up the chain and all this sort of thing. 
you you think you can kind of show that that's not what happened. So maybe you should tell us about that because I think that is a key issue in the case that you've developed. And this is the kind of thing, by the way, what right. you said is if, if I, you know, I'm still learning new things. So so. All right. My, my greatest discovery as well as my greatest mistake in this case deals with the date of the so-called McQuarrie episode. And if Jerry Sandusky uh, was going on trial today, let's pretend, right? And I had the knowledge that I have now um, and I was your co-counsel, mm -hmm. I, I would have been passionately making the case that the date itself proves that the case against Sandusky is without merit. Here's the, the sh shortest version to give you, and it, we deal with extensively in episode number one of As With the Benefit of Hindsight. But here's, the, here's the very short version, all right? When the presentment comes out in November 2011, mm -hmm. the prosecution is claiming, and it's just important to point out, this is not just arbitrarily, uh, an arbitrarily come to date. They, they just threw a, a date again. Well, this is after months and months of investigation on their part, going through his recollection, questioning him, trying to find corroborating evidence. They come up with the date of March 1st, 2002. Now, bizarrely, Carl, recently see news reports in 2022 that still have the wrong date of March 1st, mm -hmm. 2002. But that was the date that it was originally reported. That was the date that Joe Paterno thought this episode that destroyed his career occurred when he died, when he died a couple months after the firestorm. It was not until early 2012, just a little bit before you guys were forced to go to trial with no continuance, that the prosecution very quietly suddenly says, you know, um, this is interesting. Um, we need to make an adjustment on the McQuarrie episode. Uh, yeah, I, I, because we found uh, these emails, which would later become extremely important for in, uh, in other cases, um, we, we found these emails, and guess what? Oops, March 1st, 2002, which was a Friday. By the way, you may recall this, that the prosecution was was very, very proud of the fact that the, this March 1st date was the first day of spring Brain state so that jerry had this expectation of privacy in the penn state lockers right. would have this all to himself where he could rape young boys with without any turn of someone finding him because it's spring break and there's no one around and mike had said it was a night on campus well then come out in a statement they go oops that's what um yeah it was um 2002 it was actually 2001 it wasn't March. Uh, it was actually February. And it wasn't the first of the day of, of the month. It was actually the ninth of the month. Yes, that February 9th, 2001 was the new day. Now, I will never forget seeing that article in ESPN. And I think, what? Wait, what? We are going to place everything that's happening to Joe Paterno. And at that time, I was only concerned about Joe Paterno because I presume Jerry Sandusky was guilty. We're going to place everything on the recollection, the 10-year-old recollection of Mike McQuarrie, who got the date, the month, and the year totally wrong? This isn't going to raise alarm bells? And it did not. The media just went, oh, okay. No, there were no questions about what that meant about Mike's credibility. And, and, then, and, the, and the February 9th date is based upon the fact that these emails indicate that Mike went 
to go see Joe Paterno on the morning of February 10th, 2000, Saturday morning. We know that because of emails within the Penn State system. Joe Paterno didn't do emails, but he right. immediately informed Tim Curley, the athletic director, Gary Schultz, the senior president. So these emails make it very clear that it was the morning of February 10th. And here's where I made my biggest mistake, Carl. When I interviewed Jerry Sandusky in prison, the first yeah. time, I've interviewed him twice, but the, the first time I did it and I recorded it with a secret recording pen against the rules of the, Pen the Pennsylvania, uh, which, you know, which is a whole nother story that's hilarious. Um, uh, when I recorded that, there was one thing, I, I was presuming Jerry was a pedophile. But I'm also open to the idea that a, a, even a pedophile might be telling me the truth about something, right? He's not going to necessarily lie about everything. And right. if there was one thing I knew he knew in his bones, Carl. He knew in his bones, his bones, that that February 9th, 2001 date was wrong. And I found that odd because I thought, wait, how could the prosecution possibly have gotten that incredibly important fact wrong twice? That just seems implausible. And I asked him, I said, so why don't you think that date is right? And he said, well, it just doesn't seem like the right time of year. He knew who the boy in the shower was, a guy by the name of Alan Myers. And he knew that he would never have taken Alan Myers out of school. And he knew that that episode had occurred for a long travel day with Alan. Now, he didn't tell me Alan's name at the time. I figured this out on my own and then went back to him and, and verified this. So in his mind, well, that was, he couldn't figure out how February 9th... I'm sorry. That, well, that was... That, 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 uh, yes, that individual was subject to an agreement between Amendola and um, Frank Fina to not mention uh, the existence of the knowledge that either side knew who the actual person was at trial. You agree Which with is that? unbelievable. And it's a horrendous move by Joe Amendola, but we can get into that shortly. But so let me just finish the story because this is critical. So, um, so one of the first things I did after I got out of prison with Jerry Sandusky and I, and I, my, my world is in a tailspin and I'm planning on going on today's show to do an interview with Matt Lauer about all this with the recordings and all. I do a cursory investigation into February 9th. And, I, and this is where I really dropped the ball partially because I was very busy. I'm a one man band. I'm, I'm unpaid. I have no resources. I, I investigated whether or not Alan Myers went to school that day on February 9th. Is it possible that he had the off? Right. Um, and so I contacted his school and uh, got the secretary to find an old calendar. And sure enough, Alan Myers had school on February 9th, 2001. I thought, wow, okay, that's weird. And then I thought, well, maybe Jerry is either mistaken or maybe he, he's pulling some really great, because at this point, again, I'm he, maybe he's a criminal mastermind and he's, he's manipulating me with, which I would later laugh at <laughs> because as you know, Jerry's a naive done and he's not capable of being a, a master manipulator but um so but i'm thinking this doesn't make sense i got too much this was a massive mistake massive it's my greatest regret uh, from a from a uh, a knowledge standpoint in the in the case because if i had gone down that path and really just done it would have been a, a pretty extensive investigation, but it was possible if it had been, if, if I had found out the following things, 
before I went on the Today Show, that would have been the headline of my Today Show interview, which was McQuarrie got the date wrong twice. And that he did so in a way that was incredibly substantive. And here's, here's how I was able to put this together. So on February 9th, the reason why it's February 9th, Carl, is not because there's any, you know, Mike wrote in a diary February 9th that this happened. It's because the prosecution needs February 9th, the night of February 9th, to be the date because they know he goes to see Joe Paterno in the morning of the 10th. And if it's not the 9th, there's no urgency, right? The, the, the only the, 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 the you have to have to see on Mike McCurry's part to go see somebody. Now, he's not going to police. Right. But he's going to see Joe Paterno's. That's the best the prosecution can get. Best prosecution. So they need this to be as urgent as possible. And one night is the most that they can possibly deal with. It, you know, one night is plausible. Right. It happens at night. You don't want to wake Joe up. He's an old man. You talk to your dad and his friend, Dr. Dranoff. And next morning, you go see Joe Paterno. That's at least somewhat plausible. Somewhat, if you saw a rape. However, and, and let me stop you. For, there's let me stop you. Let me stop you here because this this is interesting. And the reason I I find it interesting is one thing I could never wrap my mind around was when I when I got stuck cross examining. And you know why I say stuck cross examining? Um, McQuarrie's father right. and Drainoff and McQuarrie. Um, there, there, there was no urgency on their part in the sense of Mike saw something and it was a terrible thing and it was a rape, but they didn't call the police and they didn't call children and youth and they didn't call campus security and they didn't call. And so you were always wondering like if they really saw that or had this, this terrible image in their mind of an ongoing act, knowing that the one guy's a doctor, right? And he's a mandatory reporter and, and, and presumably, and, and there's no reason to believe, by the way, that any of these people would support this kind of terrible action if it was in fact what they, what, what he saw. So it was always like, I just find it hard to believe that you didn't immediately do something. But now what you're saying is not only did they not wait a day, but, but maybe coincide with what I always thought was that McQuarrie didn't actually see anything uh, nefarious um was that was the reason why it wasn't handled as such a big deal but go on that but i just think that fits your your theory actually okay, fits so, one of the questions lingering questions well that's good to hear so let me get to the good part okay here's what i wish i had done before the today show interview the key part of my version of this story which changed many times as you know is that this was a very quiet night on campus. That was clear to him. Now that's something that's hard to misremember, right? I mean, you, you can't, you can't misremember that. I mean, because, because you're saying that nothing was going on and right. Well, here's the problem. Here's the problem with February 9th. February 9th was probably the busiest night on campus of that entire winter, right across the street from the lash building where this apparently allegedly happened was a sold out rock concert sold out rock concert across the street in the building itself. Now, Gary Schultz, who is the vice president of administration says, this is a bigger deal than the, than the rock concert going on at the exact time. And he says, this this episode occurred, which would have, would have been about nine o'clock at night at that exact right. time, Penn state's hockey team is playing a game in the building, in the building. Gary says, Mike would have even found parking. So the idea that he thought that that was a very quiet night is impossible. It's, it's literally 
impossible. There's another thing that I, you know, if if well, I was John, John, let me stop. Let, let I, me let me stop you to reinforce this. this. What you're, what you're, mm -hmm. John, let me. What you're saying is, we know the government says it's the ninth because the email went on the tenth, and that that it must have happened the night before. And you're saying the physical circumstances on campus do not coincide with as they were described as McQuarrie. And so basically, that again, that date can't be right, but that's the only date they can use because otherwise it doesn't fit their narrative and, and the entire story. And, and we know they've already changed the date once and gone through all this rigmarole about, oh, oops, we were wrong about the date, but we found a new date. And, and, but the details that you learned that I didn't know, right, about this rock concert and some of these other things, um, become incredibly salient because they directly contradict the testimony of the whole setup for that that time period. Am I, am I getting it right? All right, and and, and so let me go down. That. Yes, a hundred percent. You're hundred percent right here, Carl. We're we're on the same page. So let me keep here because it gets even better. So there's a couple other things that are problematic about February 9th. Um, number one is, I, I think you're a pretty decent college football fan. Back in this era of college football, National Signing Day was a huge deal. There was only, it wasn't, you didn't commit any time you wanted to decommit or transfer all the time today. But, but back in, in this era, there was one day when you found out which kids were coming to your school and which weren't. And for Mike McQuarrie, who was a graduate assistant at that time, desperate in need of a job, which we'll get to shortly, this is everything. National Signing Day is everything for him. It's his Christmas. It is his Christmas day. He's finding out which kids he recruited are coming to Penn State and which did not. And guess what day National Signing Day was that year? It was February. Number one, two days later, he's still in the mode of reviewing what the hell happened on National Signing As a witness, and you know this, people, they pay peg things with their memory, right? Right. If this really had happened to after National Signing Day, he would have pegged it immediately. Oh, my God. I was so, so busy. I went over to the Nash building to get some information on a recruit for some reason on a Friday night. And oh, my God, let me tell you what I saw uh, with Jerry Sandusky and a boy. And I'll never forget it. And it, I'll never forget the date because that was such a busy week. None of that happened. None of that happened because right. when this occurred, what did happen, what did happen on February 8th of that year, which was normal, big National Signing Day, after National Signing Day, all changed because you stay with the team until recruitment's over, then you leave. February 8th of that year, 2001, Kenny Jackson leaves the Penn State Nittany Lions to go to the Pittsburgh Steelers. He was the wide receivers coach. This is the job that Mike McQuarrie wanted. And I would submit, Carl, that it makes a hell of a lot more sense, hell of a lot more sense, than on February 9th, when it is in the newspaper, back in, when newspapers mattered. You know, we didn't have social media. You didn't find out things instantaneously. So the morning of February 9th, Mike McQuarrie reads in the newspaper, which is where it was reported, that Kenny's leaving, right? February 9th, he's, he gets the idea, oh my God, this is the job I want. How am I going to go get this? And that is when he starts to 
think about how am I going to get fame with Joe Paterno? And it's the learning on February 9th that, that gets him to go see Joe on the morning of the 10th, not witness Mary Sandusky raping a boy. By the way, just from a pure um, chance level, what are the chances that McQuarrie witnesses Jerry Sandusky raping a young boy in Penn State the same day that the job he opens up? That's just statistically almost impossible right now. But so let, I'll get, let me so, go back to the job thing. So what you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna tie this together here, I know, but yes. what I'd be asking, because I'm 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 gonna pretend on my audience here for a second, because I already know the answer kind of, but I but I think the question I now have is okay, I, I'm following that, but he's still gonna tell him we we, we know something on the tenth that causes an email. So so what does he tell him on the 10th or why does he need to tell him something on the 10th? Okay. So, so here, so, so now that we know that the ninth isn't the day now I'm like, okay, so what is the day, right? We know it's, we know it's not that week because there's no urgency. You know, he's, he's not waiting more than a day, you know, to do this because he's supposed to uh, the rape of the boy. So what is the date? Well, now, now I go back to Jerry Sandusky because now Jerry Sandusky is a Credible person to me, right? Because she wasn't right, and Jerry was correct. So now Jerry Zandusky has some credibility. So I go back to what he told me, and Jerry. Part of why I, that February 9th date isn't right is because I wouldn't have taken Alan Myers out of school. But I remember this episode that Penn State ended up asking me about being connected to two things: my book coming out. His infamous that the prosecution tried to use as somehow a confession, which obviously was not. It was just very ironically, unfortunately titled. Um, and me being up for the Virginia head coaching job. He said that those two things were attached in his brain to the episode that, that he was told by Penn State somebody witnessed in a Penn State shower. Right. Well, we then go back, and I had a, 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 um, a supporter find an incredibly important newspaper article. The newspaper article is from December 31st, the Sunday of, of the year 2000. So it's December 31st, talking about something that happened on Saturday the 30th. Mm-hmm. And on Saturday, it, it, it's a feature on Ski. And he's doing a book signing, his first book signing in State College for his book, Touched. On that Saturday, December 30th, and he learns on that day that he does not get the Virginia head football coaching job. Al Groh got that job. So that happened on the same day. And then his recollection was taking Alan Myers across the state from a signing Back to State College. Well, guess what? On December 29th, there was a book signing in Washington, PA, across the state from State College. Mm -hmm. So here's what together, and I have a a great interview with Jerry Sandusky's college roommate, who had no idea why I was calling him, who was very interested in what was going on at this time because he had a son that was going to the University of Virginia. So here he has his former college roommate potentially being the head coach of the school where his son's going to school, right? So he, this is very memorable for him. 
and he and Jerry have a phone conversation while Jerry's making a pit stop trying to pump his car with gas on the way from Washington to State College on December 29th of two. So now this is all starting to fit together. Where what here's what happens. On December 29th, Jerry starts in Washington PA, does a book signing, a lunch that afternoon. He and Alan Myers drive from Washington to State College. They have a workout in State College. They then go and take a shower together, which Alan Myers was 13 plus years old at that time, an athlete two and a half years from winning a college, a high school varsity letter on his team. He was not a young child. He considers Sandusky to be a surrogate dad. They take it out. McQuery is doing nothing on December 29, 2000, because it is the quietest night of the year on campus. This is correct. His testimony is accurate. December 29th is literally the quietest night. I believe that Mike McQuery was at home watching the Peach Bowl between Georgia Tech and LSU. The game ends at 8.37 or 8.38. Uh, and that gives him perfectly amount, the right amount of time to go from home to the Lash building because he's bored out of his mind after watching football all day. And that is when he hears what he says are slapping sounds in the shower. He peers by his later testimony through a smoky uh, you know, window or mirror and for two or three seconds sees Jerry Sandusky doing something he doesn't even know what with a boy. There are six weeks Six weeks between December 29th and February 10th. Six weeks that Mike McCurry does nothing regarding a public disclosure of this. Now, when he has his conversation with his dad and Dr. Dranoff, I don't know. I don't know if it was that night. I don't know if it was later. I, I am open. But as I've told you, the coup de grace telling me that my theory on this is correct is that it fit with McQuarrie's testimony and Dusky's testimony and Alan Meyer's schedule and the, and the college roommate's recollection, it even dovetails with McQuarrie and Dr. Dranoff's own testimony. Now, this is where things get complex. We explained in the podcast, but Dranoff and McQuarrie talk about having a meeting with Gary Schultz where they ask for a follow-up on Mike's report to Joe Paterno about Jerry Sandusky. And long and short of it is, Gary Schultz is positive that that meeting only took place between 10 days and two weeks after McQuarrie goes to Paterno, which, by the way, is awfully quick to be asking for an update, right? I mean, especially given the, the level of urgency and their, you know, their, their, I don't want to say urgency, but their, their level of concern. Like, hey, what the hell happened with that report right. that Mike made? about Jerry Sandusky. Has there been any conclusion with that? Well, Dr Dranoff's own testimony. Dranoff is asked by, I believe, prosecutors, and he's and he, there's two different testimonies that he, he's made where he alludes to this same timeline, where how long after Mike comes to you to tell you about this, did you have your meeting with Gary Schultz? And Dranoff says it was between one and three months. Mm -hmm. One and three. Well, what's the what is what's the mean between one and three? It's two, right? What's right. what's late February minus two months? It's late December, right? And and John McQueer is on record is John is, is saying something rather similar. Where's over over a month? I forget exactly what, but it's it's a similar 
similar statement that McQuarrie makes between the time period of the meeting with Mike McQuarrie and the meeting with Gary Schultz. So to me, the most plausible scenario is this. On December 29th, this episode occurs. I don't know when he goes to see his dad and Dr. Dranoff. It's possible to me, Carl, that Mike might have thought better of it over a holiday weekend, not wanting to bother Joe. Maybe this wasn't a big deal. Maybe I didn't see what I thought I did. I don't want to bother with this. By the way, since my expert for a job, I actually believe one of Mike's motivations here might have been that Jerry, he reads that Jerry is up for the Virginia head coaching, right? Jerry is potentially a, a godsend for Mike McQuarrie. If Jerry gets a head coaching job, he might hire Mike because he knows right. Mike. <laughs> They've actually been had a pretty good relationship up to this point. So Mike doesn't want to do anything to jeopardize his relationship with Jerry Sandusky. So it's on it until the Kenny Jackson job opens up. Okay. Now, by the time the Jackson job opens up, Jerry ain't getting any head coaching jobs. It's too late for this year. And Mike wants a job. And it is my very strong opinion that he had motivations both from an offensive as well as a defensive perspective. I can explain the defensive one if you want me to about why he would need to go see Joe Paterno with that job open. And Mike, even in my opinion, makes up testimony, Carl, you may remember this. He makes up testimony to cover his ass on this. He claims that Joe Paterno says to him on the phone, if this is about a job, don't bother coming over. I don't have one for you. I was right. in the paternal home. I was in the paternal home, and I happened to, by chance, mention that piece of testimony. And Sue Paterno, this was in front of a dozen people. Sue Paterno wasn't even directly in the conversation. Spins around. She's over in the kitchen getting ice cream. Beachy Paterno, probably. And she screams at me. That never happened. And she was there that day, Carl. She was there that day. So Mike is making shit up to be able to throw people off of what really transpired here. And by the way, the Kenny Jackson job blows up the entire cover-up theory. Because guess what? Mike doesn't get that job in 2001. He gets it in 2004 when it opens up a second time. Yeah. Now, how do you run a cover-up with the only witness not being awarded with an open job that they wanted and that they were qualified for. How does that make any fucking goddamn sense? It doesn't because it didn't happen. There was it's, no, uh, no and Mike McQuarrie didn't It's uh, 1230 at night. The kids might still be up. They watch the F-bombs, man. Uh, uh, serious serious, serious oh, side yeah. point. Um, yeah, no, it's okay. Um, <laughs> have, I, have, I convinced, have I convinced you, Carl? Well, well have I convinced you? Know, you? The answer is, I think it's very interesting because I've always thought that McQuarrie couldn't have seen what he thought he saw, nor the fact that he, listen, if he told a medical doctor that he saw a kid being raped, they would have to make a CYS report, okay? And there was nothing about his father that led me to believe that he isn't very serious about his job and he wasn't wasn't sensitive to kids. The same thing with Dr. Dranoff. Um, and McQuarrie changed his, his story so many times, but there was something else unique about him. He was very uh, gregarious and talkative at, to the point of absurdity in, in, in courtrooms where he would just talk and talk and talk and he would answer questions 
role between combative and flip-flopping and gave lots of different testimony. And we know that the attorney general got a hold of him and sat him down in a room for a couple hours on the, one of the first go-rounds. And I always felt like, I always felt like he was somebody who kind of wanted to say what you, what he thought you wanted to hear. So if you remember with the ESPN reporter or whatever, early on, he said he saw a rape and then the ESPN guys emailed him and said, well, you saw a rape and what exactly did you do? And he was like, no, I didn't see a rape, right? Because he didn't want to say I saw a rape and did something because he was kind of backing off the original story. I always felt with him that and, and piece this together in a case where you already know that the police are leading witnesses and telling them what they need to hear and denying it all along. But again, they were caught several times. So I suspect that McQuarrie may have not really seen anything of, 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 of moment, might have even, if a, if a fair and partial investigator had gotten to him, you know, someone who actually just wanted to know what he remembered and what he saw, they might not have walked away with much. Um, so I always felt like it was problematic in that area the entire time. And by the way, interestingly, that's one of the areas where the jury gave some acquittals, right? McQuarrie's own testimony. Um, well, you, 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 you won one of those acquittals thanks to your uh, cross-examination of which, Mike McQuarrie. I mean, you, you know, that, which I told you, um, I told you, know, you and I don't know if the public knows this. We're not, I mean, yeah, they handed me the file folder right before and said, uh, yeah, you know, original plan was you're not going to be talking in court, but here, uh, after lunch today, <laughs> you're going to cross-examine the next three witnesses. So I did the best I could, right? Which is what you just said there was is a, is a bombshell that in a rational world would make news. I mean, Joe Amendola, the who was a you know a celebrity at that time, Joe and Jerry Sandusky's lead defense attorney, uh, decided at the last second he was not going to cross-examine the the primary witness in the entire case, Mike McQuarrie. Because he told you that he had some family conflict, right? Didn't feel right about it. He said it. he didn't feel he comfortable because he knew them or knew the father or knew the uncle. They were, you know, uh, uh, grand poobas in the same Elks. I don't remember the exact, but it, it was just right. very bizarre okay, but to me. It's it's absurd. It's absurd. It's it's it. Frankly, there have been cases that have gotten new trials on far less than than that. As far as John, know, uh, John, did you ever uh, you know, go back and legal, look at my son? my signing statement when I entered my appearance, cause, cause that judge wanted me to enter my appearance and he was all hot and trot about that. Um, and my concern was I was, didn't want to enter my appearance because we were not adequately prepared and they weren't letting us become adequately prepared. And the government was throwing documents by the thousands of pages at the last minute. They were denying the judges denying continuances. And he said, I got to enter my appearance. So I put a signing statement on there, which is a completely made up thing in, in, in a, in a, regular court, right? I threw the signing statement on there just to, for his, historical uh, little little quirk presidents when they sign bills, will put a signing statement on there. So me being the smart ass that I am, I put a signing statement on there. And I said, you know, I'm only entering my appearance because otherwise this poor guy's not gonna have the assistance of, of an attorney that he needs, but nonetheless, we're not prepared. My fear is we're being forced into trial without being prepared. Some of the problems in this trial can go to the competency of the counsel, you know? Some of the problems in this trial can be racked up to the fact that the government worked this judge over really, really well to make sure that the defense wasn't prepared. And some of this can go to the judge who, for whatever reason, had in his head that he had to complete this case 
to the point where he would not allow continuances. He wasn't going to have continuances. He was having secret meetings up in a hotel room at one point with, that I didn't know anything about until years later uh, involving prosecutors and other judges. So I, I would tell you to this day that it is my impression that that judge was appointed by the Supreme Court or somebody with explicit instructions that that case was to be done immediately before football season or whatever the hell it was that, that the, the exact instruction was. But I always felt like that. And in the meantime, we got a crazy grand jury judge, a crazy grand jury judge who's in bed with the prosecutor writing uh, little fluff emails back and forth about how guilty Jerry is. And I remember the first time I did a grand jury proceeding in the case, I called Amendola up because that was part of the reason I was brought in because I had a lot of grand jury experience. Um, I, I called Amendola up and I'm like, these guys are asshole buddies. This is not good. Like they're laughing and carrying on in the, in the session. Like, and, and the judge said he'd get back to us on any exculpatory information. That grand jury judge couldn't find any exculpatory information. Now he was removed by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court quietly after all this happened. But I don't think the public or us really know why. And I don't think we'll ever know exactly why. But I believe it's because of his mishandling well, of the Sandusky case. Well, Carl, Carl it's, I mean, there's so many different elements of this case that the public doesn't know and the media doesn't know that are mind-blowing. But how many people would be stunned to, to learn that the grand jury judge in this case lost their job and the lead prosecutor lost their law license, both for actions that were directly related to the case. And this is, yeah. this is, this is a case about which there's supposedly there's no doubt about this in the public mind. This is, I mean, it's unbelievable, but before I know we're going to run out of time soon, because it's especially late on, on the East coast, but yeah, I just want to go back to McQueary. I want to go back to McQueary real quick. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you indicated that you think that Mike was easily, easily manipulated. And, um, and, we know a lot now about Mike's situation when investigators come to him 10 years later. I cannot emphasize that enough. 10 years, 10 years before Mike ever gives any sort of a statement indicating that he saw something that was highly inappropriate and slash illegal. And we now know, and Don Van Atta of ESPN was going to report this video where I record about this to me. It's amazing. One of the more um, remarkable bombshells in the entire case where Banana brags that he's going to report in ESPN, the magazine. Of course, he was later censored that um, one McQuarrie thought investigators were coming to him because he had been sending pictures of his penis to a woman, not his wife through a Penn State phone. That's number one. Number two, he was also concerned about the fact that he had bet on state football games there's a remarkable youtube video i don't know if you know this but uh, a penn state rutgers game that ends with joe paterno almost getting in a fist fight with rutgers coach because rutgers was so pissed off that penn state had run up the score at the last minute guess how they ran up the score carl mike McQuarrie threw a 40-yard touchdown pass in the last play of the game so that penn state could cover the spread this is a guy who bet so, on college football games. So now, so you know, um, obviously, then, I have to say, and, I don't. And, and Graham Spanier, can you, I I don't know these things to be facts. So I'm going to take you at your word ahead. for purposes of our show. I mean, I'll do some research afterwards here. But um, but if it's true, it's problematic. Check out the YouTube right? video; it's amazing. It, it, 
it's trust me, it's true. It could I mean, even Deadspin, who, who was very pro McQuery, was kind of shocked by the whole thing. And and ESPN did eventually report about the the gambling. They did not report about the the penis pictures because that would have been too damaging to McQuery. They also didn't report about something else that Graham Spanier knows, which he is not believes is the greatest source of Mike's vulnerability at that time. Um, and, and I don't know if I agree. Definitely, vulnerability definitely shows a lot about Mike's character. Um, so let's, the bottom line is had a lot to be worried about when prosecutors came to him. Right. And, and he's made, um, he, li- and he likes to be helpful when he talks to people. He really does. But he, he t- and what I mean by that is it's not, it's not a good thing to be helpful all the time, right? Sometimes you have to tell people, no, I don't know what you're talking about. But there is a class of witness out there that lawyers deal with. And every, any lawyer or police officer, for that matter, will have dealt with somebody like this, where you start asking them questions and they're very helpful. They'll tell you all about things. Oh, I think I lost our man. Uh, so give us a second here. I'm sure he'll pop back up on uh, every once in a while. It's a West Coast, East Coast feed. But what I was going to say is every time we have a witness, right, they want to be helpful. They want to answer questions. So they can't, they don't feel like they should say, I didn't see it. I didn't hear about it. I don't know about it. I'm not sure about it. Instead, they, they answer. Um, so sometimes you almost want to throw a question in that you know they couldn't know the answer to or is a completely false question. Uh, designed just to test a person to see if they have the information or not. Um, so, and John is coming back, I'm pretty sure, here any moment now. Um, here he comes. All right, you're back, my friend. You're back. I don't know what happened there. What I what I was just talking about while you were gone uh, was the idea that we had these witnesses that want to be helpful. They They want to jump in and answer questions, but they'll answer questions about stuff they don't even know about. And I think McQuarrie was that guy, and he answered a lot of questions for a lot of people, and then woke up one day and realized that he'd given 100 inconsistent answers and was stuck with all the stupid stuff he said. But even then, he didn't stop. He, he just kept going. And, well, what about this? Well, no, that's not really what I said. Well, look at the grand jury. I mean, how many different views could you – I mean, I just remember the, the, the different testimonies he gave in so many different locations, and they kept changing. So I always feel like Let, let's want- but not in a good way. Well, let's also remember he made um, millions and millions of dollars from this case because of his own lawsuit against Penn State, yeah. which was an absurd, which was an absurd lawsuit. The idea that somehow goes, he was a which, whistle whistleblower was absurd. Which goes back to your theory, by the way, that these colleges fold easily. Um, you know, that's well, that's you well, go woke, you go broke. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. John, John, um, where can people see your podcast? And, and I should say, listen to your podcast. Where do we go to get that? Besides Apple and everywhere and, else. Well, there's iTunes, Spotify, podcast distributors. I, the home base is our website, which is framingpaterno.com. That's www.framingpaterno.com. I want to be clear. I, I, I unfortunately, I hate. It sounds conspiratorial, and I, I'd have to work. And I'm, 
And I wish I hadn't picked that, but once I once it became well known, it was hard to hard to change. I am an ardent anti-conspiracy person. I, I am in fact I'm the least conspiratorial person in this entire case. You have to be a conspiracy theorist to believe in the conventional wisdom of this case. You have to believe in a massive conspiracy to believe that Jerry Sandusky is actually innocent because you have to believe in this massive, absurd Penn state cover-up, uh, which is an actual conspiracy. And, um, well, can't, I don't believe human beings. Right. Can't, can it be though? And I always say this, like, it doesn't always have to start as like a spoken conspiracy. Right. But once it's decided that this guy is bad, then I can't put out for him. And, and so a lot of the conspirators in any of these, these, you know, person Don Grata type conspiracies, they're not really like keyed in on it. They just fall into it. So, you know, during World War One or two, you couldn't like serve sauerkraut with your traditional New Year's dinner because you were somehow supporting the Germans. Right. And so you can't be someone who questions. Sure I... you, you understand, like if someone says, if you if you talk to somebody at Penn State and they think they have something helpful for for Jerry or Joe, right? But they don't want to talk about it anymore because it's no longer a good thing to be on that side. That's what I mean by uh, a, cons- a kind of oh, a conspiracy. Okay. Yeah. That All right. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. I agree. You, I, I agree with that. You you get stuck. Everybody then toes the line. It's sort of like the emperor has no clothes, right? He has clothes. Look, I'm not going to be the guy that says no, it. No, I- um, you're the guy that says it, right? And, and and tell me something. What's the personal toll been for you in this in this arena? I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. What has it been? It's been horrendous. This has been the worst thing that's ever happened in my public life. Um, you know, it should have been the best thing. I think it's been my best work, although I've made many, many, many mistakes. Um, but, you know, I, I believe that I have proven beyond any shadow of a doubt and lots and lots of people have listened to us with hindsight agree with me that the biggest sports story of, of this millennium was a fraud it didn't happen now in a rational world that would be good for your career right that would be good if your life uh, but it's been exactly the opposite which is keeping with this entire case everything is upside down the good guys are the bad guys the bad guys are the good guys and um you know it's a miracle that i'm not divorced uh, i mean that pretty seriously. By the way, one of the many ways that I try to convince people just on the very eye level that this case Mm -hmm. doesn't make any sense is is with the issue of divorce. Carl, I don't know that you've thought about this. I don't think we've talked about this, but um, let's take a look at the scorecard. Jerry Sandusky, not divorced, which is unbelievable. Grand Mm -hmm. Spanier, divorced. Gary Schultz, not divorced. Tim Curley, not divorced. John Ziegler, not divorced. Mike McQuarrie, divorced. Um, Aaron Fisher, divorced. Aaron Fisher's mom, who was a key figure in this, divorced yet again. How is that possible? How is that possible? When all the bad guys here, how is that possible? Carl, you know that's not possible. That's not possible. In the real world, that's not possible. Let me ask you this. you professionally are are you are you doing radio still or are you just doing the podcast what are you, what are you doing what's your next project i guess oh pro- professionally professionally my career has been destroyed i mean i i um i was a senior columnist 
just at Mediate for the last five or six years, um, which I left on my own because of reasons dealing with their position on COVID, um, which I couldn't okay. take anymore. Uh, and yeah, the only guy and, that, and that, that, that... Liz Abib and I have right, and so um, and Liz Abib planning on starting this new podcast, which we've tentatively uh, titled "The Death of Journalism," but I don't know when that is going to start. We've had some technical issues, which hopefully we're sorting out. Um, I'm hoping that that'll happen, but I do not know, and I don't know if that's going to be successful because not because the content won't be good, just because the nature of, of the beast is, is a way, as I said at the beginning of all this is to, to play to some cult or sing to some choir. And, and I just don't do that. I'm, I'm a square peg in a round hole. So really the only chance of reviving my career is if, if something happens with Jerry Sandusky, I'm kind of in the same boat as the administrators. I've tried to explain to the administrators, Spaniard, Curly and Schultz, to to only some success that their only hope at this point, much like for Joe Paterno, is if Jerry Sandusky somehow gets exonerated, uh, which is right. a long shot because of the massive factors against by the way Jerry's own stupidity. Because Jerry continues to be hesitant to go into federal court, which is the only place he would have a chance. And you've actually explained to me partially why that's happened because you yeah you have experiences once once with, with the the, the, I, I, the listen my audience in. knows I've been to I've been to jail. When you go to jail, the first thing the inmates want to do is tell you, fire your lawyers, get rid of them, talk to these guys in the law library. They're not crooked like the lawyers, and they're going to help you. Well, the guys in the law library are as crooked as or more crooked than the lawyers. What they want is you to pay them lots of uh, commissary and money, and a lot of money flows through prisons, I assure you. And they give them this really bum advice, which is, you know, don't listen to these guys on the street. They're only going to hurt you. They already sold you down there. Now you're in jail and you've lost, right? So you're you're very susceptible. Talk about a, a, a easily victimized individual is a prisoner who 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 is innocent. Especially Jerry uh, is very least, naive. <laughs> and 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 so I suspect that that that's very difficult for him because the other thing is. Those those charlatans in prison have have 24 seven access to you. Communication to the street is very poor. So even when there are breakthroughs uh, with the lawyers on the street, the guys in prison, you know, bear hug the people back into stupidity. Um, so, John, before we go, because I and by the way, I appreciate you doing this on short notice with me. Uh, it's an honor to have you on, first of all, um, you know, uh, I still think, after everything I've learned about you in my research, that you you could still be a talk radio guy. You could still do documentaries, keep doing these podcasts, because I think you've got what it takes. I mean, that's just my humble opinion. Um, so I want your opinion on a couple of things that completely unrelated you, to Jerry Sandusky. Well, can, can, you got you got no, to give but, me a couple. Hold minutes on, can I can that? I tell you why I have no? The, no, yeah, yeah, sure. But let me just explain why you just said it's not accurate in a okay. world where substance matters i am the most easily i am the most easily torpedoed candidate for any job of any sort in the world uh, i i am known as jerry stosky's most public defender game set match right, right there and within conservative circles i also happen to be anti-donald trump so if that if sandusky wasn't already three strikes against me. Donald Trump is another three strikes against me. So 
So, so um, I, I so have. So, John, we have that in common. Completely I, I was Jerry Sandusky's lawyer, and I, I, I was Jerry Sandusky's lawyer, so I get some flack for that. You're, you're more his more vocal supporter these days. Uh, I, I also argue with my guys about Trump all the time because I say it this way. I would have voted for Trump the first time only because of the two choices, somewhat reluctantly. I definitely wouldn't have voted for Trump the second time. I was incarcerated for the entire Trump presidency. So I like to say, you know, I, Good I don't for really you. have to worry about it. <laughs> yeah, right. And, but to me, he's the test of whether somebody's truly a conservative or not, because if you think Trump's a conservative, then you probably aren't a conservative. But I can't convince anybody of that, right? I get yelled at about that all the time. I'm like, you, you, you guys don't, what happened to free trade? What happened to, and they're like, no, no, you don't understand. I'm like, no, I, don't, I understand. And when you tell me one man, no, no American, no, no conservative American should ever say one man, right? It's we the people. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it, it, it's not, it just, it's, I don't, I'm not going to say it's a, it's a fascist bent, but it's certainly a weird bent, a populist bent of some sort. Um, so what do you think about Biden? What's going on with him? You think about Uncle Joe? Well, I, I, I think he's very he, he's very different than than um, the old Joe Biden. That's for sure. He's 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 woke Joe Biden when he's not asleep. Right. Um, uh, you know, I, I think he's made many, many, many mistakes. He's much worse than I had hoped for, not just in results, but also in his philosophy that the loan forgiveness, college loan forgiveness is completely absurd. Um I, I think, unfortunately, Democrats are going to survive the midterms, largely because of Trump's yeah. influence. Uh, and they're going to get wiped out like they should. Um, and that's going to be devastating because, to me, that means that there'll be no punishment for COVID and means we'll have another COVID eventually again when when the opportunity arises. And it, it's funny. Um, so I, I you know. It's funny you mentioned Biden being uh, woke because a lot of people don't really realize that he and Elizabeth Warren, for instance, used to be at loggerheads with each other, right? I mean, he was he's the guy that that took the bankruptcy out of bankruptcy law on behalf of the banks. So the new Joe Biden is definitely a way different cat. Um, What about Putin? What do you think is going to happen with Russia? I don't consider myself a, a Russian expert. I've not been that interested in the war in Ukraine. Um, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm a Reagan Republican, so I'm inherently suspicious of, of Russia. Um, I'm not a Trump Republican who somehow embraces Putin and, and Russia. Um, but I, you know, I, I'm, I, I don't usually give opinions on things that I don't have um, a strong base of knowledge on. So I, I, I really don't have a great, okay. uh, strong That's a opinion valid on answer. other than I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm, I'm anti, I'm anti Putin, you know? Okay. And, 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 and talking about the whole woke thing, cause you made the reference and I actually had written down woke. Cause I want to know where do you think this whole woke thing goes? Are we going to be, um, I, you know, there's a meme going around about putting like uh, litter boxes in schools because some kids identify as, you know, pets or something like this, um, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, but do you think this, this, this wokeism is the future of America or, or, and, and I guess maybe if the Democrats don't get punished in this election, then the, the, the signal is it's okay. Yeah, I think, I think that's 
need to be punished. If not, which I don't think they will be as much should be or could be, then the, there'll be no punishment for COVID, no punishment for the wokeness. And that means we'll get more wokeness because what we've seen over the last couple of years is liberals really letting their freak flag fly um, in a way that they've never felt comfortable for before doing. I mean, I'll give you an example, Carl. I live north of Los Angeles in not a anywhere since anywhere shape or form a red county, but not a blue county, like a purplish county, right? Mm-hmm. And um and in my wife's middle school, middle school, she was shocked to find in the boys' bathroom they are required to have pads and tampons in the boys' bathroom. In the boys, and then and I later learned this is a state law in California. But, so imagine the, the the millions of dollars being spent so that boys can take these tampons and turn them into paper airplanes, uh, <laughs> you know, so that, so that somehow the wokeness uh, factor can be, can, can be uh, hit properly. I mean, it's, it's bizarre. This is just one that of is bizarre. many, many examples. I mean, I never imagined, I never imagined that I would have a 10 year old, who who knows about sex but actually knows a lot about lbg issues um right and um and the disney in the disneyland disneyland where we used to go all the time we don't go anymore because uh you know they, they won't even say ladies and gentlemen um you know and they, they're doing all sorts of other woke things um so i'm a big believer that the rest of the country will be like California if they're not vigilant. And I think mm-hmm. Pennsylvania is, is kind of an interesting example of that because, um, you know, Pennsylvania, I, I, you know, I grew up there and I can't figure out Pennsylvania politically at all. When, when you look at right. the results of the, last, of the last few years, how do you get voting place team, but having Wolf as your governor uh, for two yeah. elections, and it looks like you're going to replace him with another woke liberal as your, your governor. Um, Listen, and, my, my problem and, is and I, way, I voted for, Republican. I voted for a great Republican for governor, right? But he didn't win the primary. And my, my friends here in Pennsylvania, my Republican friends, I vote Republican. My Republican friends picked a guy who for his war college faculty photo picked to dress up in a Confederate uniform. And what's funny in the photo is all, everybody's here and then he's off on the side, like a little bit by himself, because you knew every one of those guys there was like, I'm not getting in the picture with the guy with the Confederate uniform on. He's got a he's got a, an oath keeper as his personal security. And he's a friend with the guy that runs Gab and, and uh, gave him money and, you know, has some question on the anti-Semite thing. Um, but you couldn't pick a guy that's less electable on the, to, the, to a main. Oh, and by the way, he's against abortion to the point where he doesn't support exceptions for the life of the mother. He sort of stopped articulating that now, given what's gone on, but he was pretty proud to say that before. You can't win in Pennsylvania with a Republican like that. I always said Tom Ridge was a pro-choice Republican and Casey was a pro-life Democrat, right? Because what's the lesson of Pennsylvania? If you want to win statewide office, you have to be, like you said, you can't quite figure it out, but you have to be somewhere in that center range. But, but how did how did he, how did Trump beat Hillary, who, by the way, had 
ties to the state. Her father yeah. was a Penn State quarterback, for God's sake. How did how did Trump beat Hillary in 2016 in Pennsylvania? And guys, after COVID, gonna elect all these liberal Democrats. Yeah. I don't. I'm well, completely baffled. Our, I don't get our it. part. I can go back to the Trump factor. Trump came in and wanted Oz. Trump came in and wanted Mastriano for governor, and he pushed both no, of them but, over but, the but top. Trump, but but how? Do, but how does the same electorate voted for Trump over Hillary right. vote? Oh well, what, what looks our, like we overwhelming. Yeah, because because our our guys who voted for Trump, a lot of our our Democrats and middle of the road guys who voted for Trump, didn't really become Republicans. That's like a fallacy, I think, that some people in the state had that Trump brought all these new people to the Republican Party. Trump brought populism out, and he and he and there was a lot of people who voted for Trump. I think because they just didn't like the usual suspects, and Hillary was one of the usual suspects. So I feel like Trump got enough of that, that, um, stick, stick it to the man vote, you know, let's put this business guy in successful or unsuccessful. I think that's what it was. Um, I'm not, you know, I love Trump as a marketer. Um, I love Trump as a guy who, who certainly is, is, is an entertainer. I think he's a terrible freaking president. And, and this pile of classified documents mixed in with old scrapbooks in his basement somewhere. I mean, what, if, if, if anybody else had done that, I don't care, Republican or Democrat, um, everybody who says it's no big deal, would, would, their minds would be exploding right now. And they'd want to they'd hang the guy and send him to Guantanamo Bay for those imaginary right. margins my, my uh, QAnon friends keep talking about. But I don't know. I digress. But I, I no, wanted... I, I agree with that. Miley, no, Go ahead, I, but, Go ahead John. But, no, but I agree with most of that. But by the way, the... the Bring this full circle, and it feels like we're we're ending it up, which is fine. You might be surprised to know that um, many of the uh, Jerry Sandusky accusers from the trial are Trump fans. I don't know if that's because they now have a lot of money, and and and, uh, but they 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 um, we 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 keep a pretty close eye on their social media uh, feeds, which are quite interesting. They're they're all big Penn State fans, and they're Trump fans, yeah. which is I think very telling. So, so John, one last question. You uh, apparently were a very good golfer at one time. How is your golf game these days? Well, um, it's better. Not quite uh, where I hoped it would be. I'm, I'm a solid one handicapper. I've, I played in uh, five different USGA qualifiers this year. Unfortunately, I did not okay. qualify for any, but I played pretty well in, in all of them. Um, I was leading our, our U.S. amateur qualifier through seven holes. I I was three under par before I, I uh, had a, a blunder um, okay. and then ended up. Your blunder is probably what? A four your what, what your, your blunder is like a boat. Your, your, your version of a blunder is like an occasional bogey, right? My, I, I made a, I made a six on a very difficult, my, my blunder okay. there. Um, but I, I was, I was never going to qualify for the U S amateur in all likelihood. I'm 55 years old now. I, I, I was yeah. mostly playing that to, to try to prepare myself for other, Mm-hmm. qualifiers uh, you know i i, I hope I, there's still a few more tournaments left in the year that i hope to play i actually think the sandusky case harmed my you said what were the what was the ramifications and i i think one of the many ramifications is i, I hurt my golf game not because i wasn't playing i have plenty of time because i'm basically unemployed 
it's just it it shot my nerves. I mean, it it really did. It's it screwed with my head and my uh, you know my my whole outlook on life. Uh, um, I don't know if that's necessarily. I, I'm going to tell you something, uh, look, look, John. John, it's a hundred percent true, and I'm going to tell you why. I I had a big thing going on. Stole a lot of money. Had a gambling addiction. Turned myself in. After I turned myself in and before I went to jail, I shot some of the best golf of my life. And it sounds crazy, <laughs> okay? But it's because it was over. You know, I know I'm going to jail, okay? I know that part, right? But I'm no longer living this secret lie. I'm no longer trying to figure out, you know, like how to move money to make sure the business, you know what I'm saying? Like all the stress of, of, of running a, a, a criminal enterprise and a gambling addiction are gone. And now my, now, now I no longer have that. And, and I'm at peace as a sort of inner peace. Okay. And I felt that. That's very, that that's when, very interesting. <clears throat> now I'm only a four, I'm a 14 handicapper. Sometimes I get down to 12. Um, I've been off for five years what? now. I was 12 when I went in. I'm, I'm, I popped back up to 14, but I'll, I'll get it down a little more than that. Um, I'm just having a little drive problem right now. But I, I will say, I will say that, and I will say, I've spent an inordinate amount of time on the driving range thinking about Mike uh -huh. McQuarrie over the last 10 years. Yeah. I, I would say, yeah. in all seriousness, I would say that I would say that many of my my theories and eureka moments came on the driving range. Uh, which so, sounds bizarre, but it's true. No, no, that's, that's sometimes that's the meditative. But I, but no, really, and I think there's some truth to that. And I, I say that not jokingly, but in all truthfulness. And I joke now that, you know, I, I play, it, it removed the level of stress. Um, but then if, you know, all life creeps up on you. And, and so I do think that golf is a mental game. But I wanted to ask you about that because I, I picked up when I was, you know, looking into a little bit about you that apparently you're a golfer of note. And the one handicap is obviously... Uh, damn good people who don't know the game. John's a very good golfer. Don't let him fool you. All right, I'm going to wrap it up, boss. <laughs> thank you very much. I appreciate it. I want to thank everybody for listening. You guys need to check out what is with the benefit of hindsight, and you can get that. Um, what's, what's the website again? There, uh, framingpaterno.com and frame and the podcast with the benefit of hindsight can be found on iTunes, Spotify, and all their major podcasts. I'm going to throw links up on, on all these feeds and all the permanent links to this to with the benefit of hindsight. So, uh, you know, I, I'm hoping that as people listen to this, they'll come to it with an open mind. Um, you've obviously given a lot of yourself to this. So, John, uh, keep up the good work and uh, keep up the good fight. And you and I will talk again. I'm going to, I'm going to want to get you back, but I'll also talk to you oh, here. Oh, hundred percent. And and when, when, when appropriate, we're going to have you, uh, maybe we'll do episode 20 of the, with the benefit of hindsight with Carl Rominger. So uh, that'll be fun. All right. All right. Thank you, my friend. Have a great night. You too.